Good Thanksgiving? That was fun. Um, my name's Joel Wilkes. For those of you who don't know, I am the youth pastor here at New Covenant Church. Uh, if you're visiting and you don't know me. Um, and one of the things I love to do is preach. I love to preach the Word of God. I love to dive in and explore and be shaped and molded by um, God's words to us. Um, and one of the other things I like to do is when I get an opportunity to preach to you all, I like to kind of take what we learn in there and kind of tweak it a little bit and, uh, and, and give it to you in the sermon form because I think it's really important for us to draw connections between, uh, since, since we are a body of Christ, right, since we are the body, like even if you don't have children in the senior high or if you're about to have children in the senior high or if you did or, or if you never will, um, we're all one ministry, right? This isn't New Covenant Church's youth ministry. This isn't, you know, the owls. This isn't just separate things. We're one body. So I, I like to give y'all a little taste of uh, kind of what we've been doing and kind of let you experience a little bit about what's been happening in the youth ministry since to try to draw us a little bit closer together. Um, so last semester, we, I did a series through 1 Peter. So that's where we're going to be today. If you open up your Bible to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1. And I, if you got your phones or your Bibles, I'd really encourage you to open up so that you see I'm not making this stuff up, right? So, like, I, I really, really value and respect this book a lot. It's, it's the foundation of my life. And I, I want you to read along with me while we're reading so that you know I'm not just kind of blowing hot air at you, but you, you can see these are the words of God. So flip with me to 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 1, 1 through 9 is where we'll be today. Um, but before we do that, I want to kind of tell you a story. I, I was a wrestler in high school, and I wrestled for about six or seven years or so, um, and I had some ups and downs in, in matches, but I wrestled this one guy, his name was Robert Quinn. Any, anybody? No? Okay. Robert Quinn is now in his ninth season in the NFL, uh, and he, he is, he's playing for the Dallas Cowboys now. He's, now he's 6'4", 260 pounds. I wrestled him when he was a freshman in high school, and when he was a freshman in high school, he was like 600, or 6'4", 220 pounds. Um, I was 5'9", and 200 pounds, um, which if you don't know, that's a big difference. Uh, and I remember stepping out onto this mat with this giant, right, and I stepped out onto the mat, I shook his hand like this, um, and I remember the distinct feeling of, I don't belong here. <laughs> I don't belong here. This isn't going to go well for me. <laughs> and um, as we got to wrestling, the one thing I had, the one thing I had on him, I was a junior and he was a freshman, and and he was young and rather inexperienced in the sport, and so that was my, my edge I had on him. Everything else, I had no hope, right? He was taller than I was. He was stronger than I was. He was bigger than I was. I had no hope whatsoever. At one point in the match, and I clearly remember this to this day. My dad does too. He watched it. Uh, he cradled me, which is a great move if you don't know what it is. It's a pinning move where you wrap your arm around the head and between the legs and you lock up your hands and you tilt them back on their back. The problem was he cradled me 
while I was standing up. <laughs> Which meant he wrapped his, bod, his arms vertically around my whole body while I was standing about like this. And he locked his hands up, and I distinctly remember thinking, what do I do? I, I've never seen this before. I don't have a, any hope in, in this. And so I, I gave my coach, I looked over at my coach, like, um, and he, he, he said, break the grip, break the grip. And I, I distinctly remember thinking in my head, you break the grip. <laughs> And I tried to break the grip. I couldn't break the grip. There was this absolutely no hope for me in this match. I ended up losing that match um, by a couple points, I think. I don't remember what it was. But um, I, I was out of place. I had no hope. There, there wasn't a chance for me really at all to beat this guy. He was bigger, stronger, faster than me. Um, he, praise the Lord, went on. He won three state championships at heavyweight the next three years in a row, and he, um, then he went off to play in the NFL, and uh, I didn't have to wrestle him ever again, which was awesome. Um, <clears throat> but frequently, oftentimes, the life you're called to as a Christian, that's kind of a silly example, but the, the life you're called to as a Christian can, can feel like you're a little bit over your head, right? It can feel like you're out of place or, or there's no hope. Um, and and um, Peter here in, in 1 Peter, uh, he's writing to the elect exiles, the elect exiles, people who are in exile uh, from their faith, from their community. And oftentimes when you're uh, in, in out of place, there feels like there's no hope or no certainty in your life. And that's one of the major reasons that, that God had Peter write this letter was to provide uh, a letter of hope to people who perhaps were hopeless or provide certainty to people who were uh, uncertain and even in the midst of suffering. Um, so on your outline there, I gave you three points that we're going to talk through, the, answering the question of how. How is this a letter of hope? How does this first, first nine verses answer that question of how is this a letter of hope? Um, and my first point there is God establishes our hope in Christ. God establishes our hope in Christ. Look with me at verse 3. <coughs> you have to excuse me. I, I think I got a cough this morning. That was fun. Read with me in verse 3. Follow along there. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now there are, I know, one verse. I go real fast. Um, there are a number of different kinds of hope, right? Um, some people talk of a fond hope. A fond hope is a hope that's fragile. It's a hope that uh, it, it's a hope that you hope for something without really expecting it to occur. Like my hopes yesterday when Carolina played Clemson, I was I had a fragile fond hope that we would be able to do something, and and, and I didn't really expect it to occur. It worked out the way I thought it would, um, but that's not the kind of hope that Peter is referring to. He calls it a living hope, a living hope, which begs the question, what is that or, or how can that be? How can this be a living hope? One author um, said that, that this is, uh, Peter writes, of a sure hope, a hope that holds the future and the present because it's anchored in the past. And I, I think that's beautiful. I want you to hear it again. He writes of a sure hope, a hope that's, holds the future and the present because it's anchored in the past. 
What that means is Peter's hope here that he talks about for salvation from sin and death is something he can count on because God has already accomplished this salvation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this has already been done. Now, this, this is really, um, the perfect illustration of this is Peter's life himself. If you've read the Gospels, if you know anything about Peter, he um, was a very kind of zealous man, right? Uh, he was very zealous. He, he At one point, he, of two people who've walked on water in this world, he's one of them. And he, he saw Jesus walking. He gets really excited and says, Lord, if it's you, let me come out to you. And he jumps out and starts walking on water, right? I don't know if that would have been my reaction, but that was him. And, and he also, when Jesus was being arrested, right, he, he takes a sword out and lops a dude's ear off. That, like, he's willing to jump in and fight, um, which, if you think about it, like, he's a fisherman, he's got this sword, and he swings, and if he's swinging for the head, he's probably trying to do some serious damage to this guy. He's probably trying to, like, really hurt him, kill him, and he, like, misses, gets his ear. Um, but that's a whole other side. That's kind of who he was. Also notice he was the first person who actually proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, he was the first one who said, you are the Christ. Where else could we go? Um, and then he turns around and denies Jesus three times. He's hot and he's cold, right? Um, he denies Jesus three times when he's uh, being arrested. Um, when he's on the cross, when Jesus is on the cross, um, Peter sees his hope die, right? Peter, he's hot, he's zealous, he, he's, like, he's, he's all over the place, he's hot and he's cold, um, but when, when he, if, put yourself in his shoes for a minute, right? In that moment, Peter has just denied Jesus three times, hears the rooster crow, feels the guilt and shame of having done what he did, and Jesus dies. Can you imagine what was going through his head at that time? Um, he, like I said, he was the first one who saw Jesus and said, you are the Christ. And then he watched the Christ die after denying him. Do you feel that shame, that guilt, that Peter, Peter, all of his hopes died with Christ? It's, it's, so, it's so potent. Look with me at uh, Luke, Luke chapter 24. He's sitting there after having denied Christ, sitting there um, in shame and guilt and fear, right, hiding from the officials, and uh, the, the first people to go see the resurrection, the res empty tomb, were women. Look with me in uh, chapter 24 of Luke, starting in uh, verse 8. We'll start in verse 8. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, that is the women, uh, they told all these things to the eleven, to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanne and the Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with him who told these things to the apostles. So they went to the tomb. They saw the empty tomb. They saw that it was empty. They were told that he had been raised. They come back and they tell these things to the apostles in verse 11 there. But these words seemed to have seemed to, the, to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So the rest of the 12, the rest of the 11, I should say, um, kind of like didn't believe these words. But in verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. His first reaction to the, even a, the inkling, the thought that Jesus had come back to life, because he did remember, he spent three years with Jesus, the first inkling was he takes off and he sprints 
to the tomb. And, and, and this, in, the, in this time and age, like, a man running was a disgraceful, shameful act. Like, men didn't run around, right? So you can see him hiking up his robes, sprinting to the tomb. Why did he do that? Because the hope that was dead had now come back to life. When he watched his hope die, the resurrection brought it back. The resurrection of Christ was this life-changing, altering event in Peter's life because it didn't just return Peter's master and teacher to him, right? It returned all of his hopes. All the hopes that he said, you are the Christ, where else should we go? All of it had come back to him because the resurrection of Jesus was Jesus' victory over sin and death. And it was Peter's victory over sin and death, freely given to him by the grace of God. And it's your freedom and victory over sin and death if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today. Like, the hope that Peter had was brought back. And that hope he's giving and telling you about now, it's a living hope because it was based and grounded in the continuing, ongoing work of the person of Jesus Christ. The power of sin and death had been defeated. The resurrection is the event upon which all all history turns. It's the hinge upon which all history turns. It's with this resurrection that we have this living hope. That means for the believer, the source and the power and the giver of hope um, will never fade. It can only grow stronger because Jesus is still at work today. Jesus is still at work today. No matter what the circumstances you face, the hope that Jesus, the hope of Jesus Christ never changes. For the non-believer, this is a free gift. The free gift of Jesus Christ that he freely offers to you. The freedom from sin and death, shame and guilt. Like verse 3 says, to be born again. To be born again is to be given a new family. To be born again is to be given a new home. It's a father to the fatherless. It's a hope to the hopeless. It's a peace to the peaceless. And this is a hope that won't perish that won't be blown about by the circumstances of the day. Which leads me to my second point, the, maintain, the maintenance of our hope. God maintains our hope through our inheritance. Read with me. Actually, let me back up a little bit. Our inheritance. My dad is one of my personal heroes. Terry Wilkes, he's sitting right over there, actually. He came today. Um, he's one of my personal heroes. He's a phenomenal man. If you get a chance to meet him, go meet him. He's incredible. Um, and as we were growing up, I had, I had uh, three other siblings. As we were growing up, my dad had this, this um, personality trait where he, he really cared about people and he really cared about things. And if he had something he didn't want to lose, right, and he told me I could tell the story, so it's okay. Um, if he didn't want to lose something, he would put it in a safe place, Right? So if he had car keys or, or, or flashlights or something that he thought, you know, I don't want to lose this thing, uh, so I'm going to put it in a safe place. And then the problem would become he would forget where that safe place was. <laughs> um, like I said, he's an excellent human being, uh, a God-fearing man who loves the Lord, and he raised me up and is incredible. And I'm sure I haven't started to do this thing yet, um, but I'm sure I will soon. Um, and it became a running joke in the family, right, that, that, that we, you know, dad probably put it in a safe place. <laughs> and so we'd go look for the safe place. It was so safe and secure, we didn't know where it was. Um, God isn't like that. 
And I think my father would, uh, would say a hearty amen to that idea. See? Um, <laughs> God isn't like that ever. Our, the inheritance that we're given isn't something that can be misplaced or lost or, or, or changed. Read with me in verses 4 and 5 of 1 Peter 1 there. Um, from the dead, the, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for, for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This, um, this, this inheritance is maintained in a safe place that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Um, and you all know what an inheritance is, of course. Um, and Peter, Peter had heard uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he said, store your treasures in heaven. Um, generally speaking, uh, if you are going to receive an inheritance from your family or whatnot, you kind of have an idea of what it's going to be, right? <coughs> Excuse me. You have an idea of where it's going to be there, where it's going to be there. But God is much better than our family. God is much better than our, our parents. Um, and another example that, that Peter is alluding to is the inheritance of the promised land to the Israelites. Um, so while the, the Israelites were wandering around in the desert, they were looking forward to the promises of God that he said, I have set aside a land for you, a promised land, promised land, um, that is for you, that is your inheritance. I've set it aside. I've got it ready for you. I'm holding it for you, ready and waiting. So while they were wandering around the desert, the promise of the inheritance maintained them. It, it sustained them, but was yet to come. The hope we have in Christ is just as sure as those things. The hope we have in Christ, nothing can get in and change it. Nothing can get in and move it. And I don't know about you, but the comfort and that surety in such an unsure world is amazing. This, this world is constantly changing. It's constantly moving. It's shifting. There's dramatic things that happen that we would never expect to happen. But the idea of a constant and an inconstant world is incredible. It's incredible. Look especially at verse 5, that word ready. Um, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That term suggests that there's no need for delay, right? So our inheritance will be revealed in the last day, but it's ready now. God's work is done. There's, he's not like keeping going. Like our inheritance is ready and waiting. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing needs to be taken away from it. As a matter of fact, our final inheritance is God himself. So over and over and over again in the Old Testament, um, in the book of Joshua, when they're dividing up the land to the different tribes of Israel, um, God tells the priests, you don't get a portion of the land because I am your inheritance. You inherit me. And later on in this very letter, like um, was mentioned earlier, um, we're called a kingdom of priests. If you're a believer of Christ, you are a kingdom of priests. You are a priest. And so the inheritance that you receive is God himself. There's nothing more sure than that. Not only is it kept for us in an imperishable, undefilable place, but it is the amazing maker and sustainer of the world, and you get to have a personal, close connection and relationship with him. 
for all eternity. It's so secure that Paul in Romans 8.38 boldly proclaims, he says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, neither things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is beautiful stuff. That is, that is just so comforting to me. It brings us to my third point, however, the idea that if our inheritance is kept for us and it's so sure, what does it do for our sufferings now? What does it do for our sufferings now? And my third point is God gives joy through trials in Christ our hope. God gives joy through trials in Christ our hope. Now, read with me in verse 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, the community to whom uh, Peter was writing was undergoing some, some serious suffering, and they were being um, persecuted, and they were going through some truly horrific things. Um, they were being persecuted and killed for their faith and would be for quite some time after this letter was, was written. Um, and their persecution was primarily a persecution for their faith because they were Christians and they believed they were persecuted for that. Now, if you look at my point, it, it seems a little odd for me to say to, to, that, that, that God gives joy in suffering. And if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard that idea a bit. Uh, but if you take a step back and you look at it, it, it seems a little odd, a little weird. Um, you might look around the world and see suffering on a grand scale or, or in your own life, I'm sure, in very horrific ways. Now, what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that the, 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 the pain of suffering isn't real. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying the pain of suffering isn't real or that this joy that Peter talks about somehow magically just kind of washes away the pain of suffering. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, as many of you probably know in a very close and personal sense, pain, uh, the pain of suffering is really very, very real and very horrible. And there are a lot of different types of suffering that um, really is just a whole other sermon. My point here that I'm getting at here is that suffering often brings about a sense of confusion or, or a sense of purposelessness. Um, and, and during those times, we kind of switch into survival mode just to make it through. Um, and in, in that kind of state, where is the hope? Notice a few things about Peter, about how Peter encourages his readers to have joy in their suffering. First, uh, he points them to their hope in Christ, points beyond the trials. It points beyond the trials. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. A little while. Whenever I work out or whatnot, like if I've got a coach or a personal trainer and um, I'm struggling, right? I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that. But when I'm struggling to finish a workout, if I have a coach or somebody say, just one more, three more, push through. You know, like if somebody, if I can see the end in sight, right? 
it's easier to make it through the, the finish line. That's kind of the idea that, that, that Peter's getting at here for a little, for a little while. This, this isn't going to last forever. There is an end date in sight. Um, that's, that's kind of what Peter's getting at here is that, that this isn't going, whether it's now here on earth, whether it's in the future, in, in, the, in the second coming of Christ, this isn't going to last forever. Um, notice, too, how he also shows that their hope is actually strengthened. Their hope is actually strengthened by the sufferings that they endure. He uses in verse uh, 7 the illustration of gold, um, which he says, it's, it, he claims, you know, it itself is perishable. The way that gold was purified would be uh, you'd melt it down, and all the impurities in gold would kind of rise to the surface. That's called the dross, and you kind of sweep that away, and, and you purify the gold that way. But the only way to do it would be to melt down the gold. Um, similarly, as hard as it can be to hear, our trials kind of help to strengthen our hope by burning away, sometimes uh, depending on the trial, burning away our own pride or our own sense of, um, I can do this by myself. The, the trials tend to push us into the arms of Christ, our Savior, saying, you can't do this by yourself. You need something greater. You need something greater. Um, and one of the design, like the very first, in the very first thing that wasn't good in creation was for man to be alone. We weren't designed to do this world, to do this life alone, even when things were perfect. So how much more do we need one another when things are terrible? God raises up the church. He raises up family. He gives you friends. He encourages people to gather together to strengthen one another all over the place. And finally, our trials are not forgotten by the Lord. First Peter, um, First Peter 7 here, our trials are not forgotten by the Lord. The end of the trials um, with the strength, the, the, excuse me, the trials end with the strengthening of our faith. Like he says, there uh, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The strengthening of our faith results in that, the, the, the praise and glory and honor at the end. He doesn't waste suffering. God doesn't waste suffering. Um, part of the encouragement in the midst of suffering is that you are not forgotten by the Lord. Psalm, Psalm 56, 8 says, uh, the psalmist cries out to God and says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Uh, one author said this. He said, The whole nature of suffering is changed for the Christian when he realizes that his anguish brings honor to Christ. We're serving something greater than ourselves. So there's, there's three encouragements there um, that Peter points out for us. But notice, notice how Peter does not address suffering. He doesn't say, um, smile more and you'll feel better. He doesn't say, reach down, grab your bootstraps and pull real hard. He doesn't say, it's not that bad, think happy thoughts. He doesn't say any of that because all of those things are temporary and will fade. All of that is this, this fond hope that I mentioned before. True hope, true hope is grounded in something more. You see, 
True hope is established in something real, the resurrection of Christ. True hope is guaranteed in a place that can never change and never be altered. And true hope is the only thing that brings joy despite any and all circumstances. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a living hope. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you don't leave us forgotten or lost, but you came down and joined us in that suffering, Lord, that you are the high priest who cares enough to be sacrificed. I, I can't thank you enough, Father, for that. I pray that we will cling to you, that we will uh, wipe away any, any pride that, that we might have, Lord, that you will reveal it to us and that we will repent and cling to you as our only source of hope and salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you did on the cross to ensure that hope. I pray again, Lord, that we will cling to you in uh, t good times and in bad. Thank you, Father. It's only by your son's name that we pray. Amen.